Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of Tell Us a Good Story. Today, we have an amazing conversation with Lisa McCoven. She is the author of four New York Times bestselling books. She writes about behind the scenes with the Secret Service, from JFK's assassination to dealing with five presidents. She also wrote a biography of Betty Ford. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Tell Us a Good Story. stuff this is going to be so much fun i am i my heart's beating i'm so excited right now yes i've been reading about this next guest all morning as you have as well amazing before we get to that guest yes what do we have to share (gasps) you guys you met her where so our book is officially out i know we talked about it before but we have been getting so much great feedback we want to thank you guys and anybody who has not purchased our book we just want to let you know that it's out there on amazon, amazon and on our website kevinstep.com yep it's our story of healing and hope mm-hmm. and our memoir of what we've been through over the last 15 years of marriage yes so speaking of authors stuff, oh here we go our next guest is the author of four not one not two not three four New York Times best-selling books. She's an award-winning journalist, the proud mother of two sons, and the pride of Babson College. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Tell Us a Good Story, Lisa McCoven. Thank you. Everything but that last part. <laughs> There's a lot more accomplished people from Babson College than me. <laughs> well, it was, it's about the size of Ohio Northern, where I went. So it's a private school in Massachusetts right. with, I think, about 3,000 students. Okay. And so when I saw that, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's like a school that I went to. Mm-hmm. So uh, that, was, that was very cool. So Lisa, I want to brag on you a little bit here. Okay, so I want to give a Good morning, by the way. Good afternoon. <laughs> yes. So you're in what, San Francisco? Yes, San Francisco Bay Area. Yes. Okay, and the weather's probably a little bit better there than what it has been here. Yes, it's beautiful. Very nice. Yes. Ugh. I can only imagine. So, listeners, let's tell you a little bit about Lisa. If we have like, enough time. Oh, my gosh. To talk okay. about her. Are you ready for this stuff? Yes. On top of being an award winning journalist and best selling author of four books. She's been a television news anchor and reporter for NBC, ABC, CBS. She was too good for Fox, apparently. She didn't make <laughs> get to the fourth one. But she's on those three. She hosted her own radio talk show. She spent six years in the Middle East as a journalist in Saudi Arabia and Qatar. And then in 2009, she had a longtime family friend, Gerald Blaine, who asked if she would help him write a book about his time in the Secret Service. That book, which was named The Kennedy Detail, JFK's Secret Service Agents Break Their Silence, became a New York Times bestseller and was the basis for an Emmy-nominated Discovery Channel documentary, The Kennedy Detail. Then (laughs) Then. (laughs) she went on to write three memoirs with Clint Hill, who was the Secret Service agent and best known for leaping onto the back of President John F. Kennedy's limousine as shots were being fired. Uh, in Dallas, 1963. She's also a professional speaker who gives presentations at corporate conferences, universities, and private groups all over the world. So at this point, I don't know what else there is to do, quite honestly. <laughs> Lisa, what 
what have uh, you, you make done? You sound better than it really. <laughs> make it sound a lot more glamorous than it is. Trust me. That's amazing. It's really impressive. So a journalist, a uh, author, best-selling author, best-selling author, public speaker, a mom, mm-hmm. has been all over the world. That that is incredible. So you no, know, I never set out to do any of these things. Um, and uh, my, I remember my my oldest son when he was a sophomore in college saying. You know, mom, they're asking me to choose a major, and I feel like I have to figure out what I want to do for the rest of my life. And he was just so panicked about it. And I said, no, 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 just figure out what you want to do right now and follow that. And then as long as you don't box yourself into any one thing, keep your options open, do what you love, follow your dreams, but be realistic at the same time. Um and everything will unfold the way it's supposed to. So that's kind of how I look at my life. Um, you know, I never set out to be any of these things. Um, and it just happened. So So did you start off as a um, news anchor? Is that where is that where you started off in the news? Um, no, I started off, um, I was one of those out of college. I was one of those telemarketers calling you at what? dinner time to get you to change your phone service. <laughs> so that was, really? yeah, that was my first job in 1985. The, um, AT&T had just broken up. And so there was, remember Sprint and Allnet. Allnet was my first job. And so I did telemarketing and then I, got into marketing and then um, I did sales for a radio station and that was kind of like my inroads into broadcasting was um, I was doing the sales part of it in um, Princeton, New Jersey for a radio station and um, I really liked that the whole broadcasting thing and then I had kids I was a stay-at-home mom and um, I, I would watch Oprah. Oprah was on at nine o'clock in the morning and I was always happened to be feeding my baby at that time. So I'd watch Oprah and I thought, man, that's the best job in the world. <laughs> Just interview people and, you know, tell people stories. I've always been very inquisitive. And um, from there, I heard a, an advertisement to be an on-air um, talk show host and let's see, where were we living at that time? We, I was moving around a lot due to my husband's job. Um, and, oh, we were in Bakersfield, California, and there was a radio show, and they were looking for a new on-air host. And I went and auditioned for it. I had no experience, um, and I got the job. Wow. And so that's kind of how I got into it. And then from there, so I did my little radio show, and then um, I went to the local television station and said, I think I could be a news reporter. <laughs> uh, no, you can't. <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> yeah, that's not how it works. And uh, so I became an intern. And I was like, I think I was 30 years old at the time. And I was an unpaid intern. And then somebody quit um, the live morning television reporter. So they stuck me in there one day. And because I was, you know, a live, breathing body, I got <laughs> So that it just kind of went from there, you know, it just unfolded. And, um, and then, you know, I honed my writing skills and, and being a reporter, you're telling stories. So, right. you know, you're taking a lot of information and then condensing it down um, very quickly. 
So um, I, that's really where I learned how to write was um, from those local television news stations. Oh, my gosh. So one thing we've learned, Lisa, with this podcast is if I say something stupid, I can edit this out. Okay. And so to me, I say on average one stupid thing per conversation. Steph says I say five stupid things per conversation. But again, we're not live. So how hard is live television, especially when you haven't done it before? You're an intern, you get thrown in. How hard was that to adjust to? I loved it. It was kind of like when that light went on, um, I I was performing, I guess. Okay. Um, I've always been kind of an introvert. My younger sister is an actress and she's always been the one in the spotlight. And so I'm kind of an introvert, um, but, and I was scared to death to speak in front of real people. So when I, I, but I could talk in front of a camera. And so it was usually just the camera person and me. And, but I felt like I was communicating and I don't know, I, and when you have the voice in your ear, you know, you have the producer telling you, oh, okay, right. 30 seconds. And that just kind of got my adrenaline going. I mean, I really loved it. I really did. So how did you make it overseas? So, um, my, my ex, my now ex-husband was working for an oil company and, um, we got transferred to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia in July of 2001. So I had been um, working at the NBC station in Bakersfield, California. I was the morning news anchor um, right before the Today Show. And I just loved my job so much. And then we got transferred to Saudi Arabia, which of course there are no news stations in Saudi oh, Arabia. And so I went over there and I, um, and then, so this is remember July, 2001. September 11th, 2001 yeah. was a few months later and I was in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Wow. So my former station was calling me saying, what's it like over there? And especially once it came out that, you know, most of the terrorists were from Saudi Arabia. Um, I was all of a sudden, you know, the only unemployed journalist in Saudi Arabia, American journalists in Saudi Arabia. So I was um, doing reporting back to them from what I was seeing in Saudi Arabia. So what was it like there? Um, it was fascinating. I um, bet. You know, I had to wear the abaya, the black abaya. Always had to have um, a, a black veil to cover your hair. And... Um, I didn't have to have my face covered, um, but I did have to cover my hair. I had to have a driver, which I loved, by the way, <laughs> um, because women weren't allowed to drive. Yeah. But I liked having a driver. And um, and at first on 9-11, people were very compassionate. You know, they could tell I was American and people, strangers would come up and say, we're so sorry of what happened. But then as soon as we started, um, you know, bombing Afghanistan and uh, as, a, as a war on Islam, everything changed. And then we were pretty much in lockdown on our compound. We lived in a gated uh, compound for expats. And um, actually, now that I think about it, it's kind of like what we're going through right now. You know, we really weren't allowed to go out. Um, I had to send the driver to go get groceries. And... Um, it was became a scary time, and uh, and so we were there for about two years, 
during that time. And then we moved back to the U.S. How old were your boys during that time? They were seven and nine. And they actually, you know, they, it was a great life for them because uh, they have friends from all over the world that went to their American international school. And um, it was a really good experience. Steph, can you imagine going from Bakersfield, California (laughs) to Saudi Arabia and then two months later, like Lisa said, no. one of the biggest events in, in history, history yeah. takes place, and it's related to right where she's living. Oh, my gosh. So, so was your phone just blowing off the hook with uh, request? Hey, we want to get you on camera. We need you to report. I mean, was it just nonstop no, no for you? Cameras. No, I mean, that was just by phone. Um, we didn't have oh, it okay. yeah, right now. I mean, this is 20 years ago, right? Almost. And, um, you know, there was no Zoom. Um, there was no Skype, I don't think. Um, but you didn't have a video camera that you put yeah, on a tripod. That's what I was thinking. Okay. You no, know, it was all by phone. Um, so, and it was really just to my local station that I was, that I was reporting back <clears> to during that time. But then what ended up happening was, so um, all of the American media started coming over to Saudi Arabia you know, Barbara Walters came over and they were doing all these investigations and um, the Saudis didn't know how to respond to this. They're a very um, private people. You know, they, they don't like to let everybody know their business. And it came across that they were being secretive. So I ended up actually being hired by the foreign Saudi foreign minister as a media consultant to help them deal with the American media. Really? What? So it, that was very interesting. And I um, I had to, because they were mostly men, um, they wanted me to be uh. behind a screen. And I really fought that because I said, well, when you, they were going to send a delegation over to the U.S. And I said, when you go to the U.S., you're going to be dealing with women in short yes. skirts. And so, I mean, I wasn't going to do that there, but I said, you have to be comfortable Speaking to a woman. Exactly. What what is the time difference between Saudi Arabia and the U.S.? Probably like uh, nine hours, maybe. So what time was it when you found out what was going on? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember it was um, in the afternoon. It was around three or four in the afternoon. And uh, we were at the, the swimming pool on our compound. And... Um, I remember this Dutch woman came running up and saying, something's happening in the U.S. You need to go home right now and turn on your television. And at that point, the, I think the first plane had just hit. And, oh. and then it was just like, oh my, you know, as we all did, you're just kind of in shock. Uh-huh. I thought my world was upside down at that moment. Her world yeah. and completely upside down yeah. at that moment. So. Moving on, Lisa, I, neither one of us are history buffs, okay? I by, love history. By any means. Love history, but definitely not a buff. Oh, you do? I love history. See, you don't even know me. <laughs> you don't even know me. Yes, I love history. <laughs> okay, so I am not a history buff. Mm-hmm. However, your book, Topics, and the people that oh. you've interviewed oh. for your books yes. are fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. So, Back in, I think it was 2009, you had a family friend reach out to you about writing a book with him. How, I guess, what did you think and how did that kind of play out when he reached out to you? 
Yeah, I'll try to um, tell it as quickly as I can. But so I had known Jerry Blaine um, since I was in high school. I actually went to the senior prom with Jerry Blaine's son. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So Scott was in my class and, and uh, we were living in Wilton, Connecticut. And, um, and then uh, my parents and Jerry Blaine and his wife, Joyce, were just longtime friends. And so, um, I mean, in a way, he was almost like a, an uncle to me. And um, I knew that he had been a Secret Service agent with JFK. And we would, whenever we would go to their house, they had this basement and he had all these cool photos down in the basement of JFK. And truth be told, I'm not a history buff either. I never really was interested in the Kennedys or the assassination or anything, but I thought it was super cool that he had been a Secret Service agent. So fast forward now 25 years, um, I find out he's writing a book about you know his time in the Secret Service, and I had come back from um, Saudi Arabia, and I was actually writing a book about my time in Saudi Arabia. Couldn't get it published, couldn't find an agent. He was having the same problem, and I thought, geez, how can you not get your book published? Right. You know, that's a really good subject. And so we were kind of commiserating by email and um, just ended up collaborating. And then I got a literary agent and it just all started coming together. Wow. So that book is literally about him and Secret Service agents who worked for JFK. Is that correct? That's correct. And so it was called The Kennedy Detail, um, the Secret Service agents on The Kennedy Detail. And the story is really about how the assassination affected those agents. And I thought it was fascinating because no one had ever looked at that angle before. You know, there've been a million books written about the assassination. And part of why Jerry wanted to write it was when he retired, um, he was looking on the internet and he saw all these conspiracy theories and these wacko things people were saying. And he's like, that's not what happened. And so he wanted to write a book about what really happened from the secret service, what they knew um, and how it affected them emotionally because um, you know, their sole mission is to keep the president alive yeah. to prevent this from happening. And when it happened, when that happened on their watch, they all felt responsible that they couldn't have prevented it. And the most fascinating thing, Thing to me was that none of them had ever talked about it really so this is now uh, almost 50 years after the assassination so they're all now in their 70s they've never talked about it um, with each other not that they couldn't or were told not to they hadn't talked to their families about it they all said it was just too painful too they devastating go there and so um, so I started interviewing some of the agents. He put me in touch with them and he had sort of made the outline for the book and had put a lot of work into it. Um, but it needed a writer's touch. Right. And, um, so I started calling, um, you know, all these agents. And now by this time in 2009, I'm living in Doha, Qatar. So there's another oh, hour right. time difference. So I'm <clears throat> calling them. Um, like at midnight my time, but uh, we we put together the proposal. We our agent got it out, and we got we actually got like thirty rejections. Um, really? Yeah. Even with that topic, 
Oh my God. Yeah. And they're like, no, it's, you know, another Kennedy book. And I was like, no, it's not. It wasn't until Clint Hill signed on that we yeah. got him to agree to write the foreword. And then um, Mitchell Ivers at Simon and Schuster snapped it up and agreed to publish it. And then we went from there. So yeah, it wasn't an easy road by any means. <laughs> when you were talking or like interviewing these secret service agents, I don't know about you, but I would literally be like just this, like my hand on my chin, just like <laughs> absorbing everything they're saying. I mean, I bet it was just fascinating for you. It was. I mean, it's kind of like pulling teeth, though. They're, they don't like to talk. Oh, uh, <laughs> um, right. So, and I really had to learn um, about the Secret Service. So <clears throat> I actually flew to Colorado where Jerry Blaine was living and spent about two weeks with him just absorbing everything I could about the Secret Service. You know, what was what was it like back then? What kind of equipment did you have? Which was none. You know, they had they used hand signals uh, really? to communicate with each other. They had old World War II radios that they were using. Um, they had there were forty men protecting the president and his family. Forty. Forty. Wow. So, and so that was three shifts. So you'd only have normally five to 10 people on each shift when you accounted for people doing advances. So literally five to 10 agents around the president as he's traveling to Berlin, um, you know, to Paris, all over the world. That's, they were really strapped. At all times. So, when, like, say he was traveling to Berlin or somewhere, would they bring all 40 or, like, no, you have five to 10 agents for that entire trip? No, they would bring um, the majority of them. And because okay. they work in shifts. shifts. So they would do eight hour shifts, which really ended up being 16 hour shifts because they were always so short handed. Oh, man. Double shifts all the time. That so would be. That was fascinating to me just to learn the sacrifices they all made. But every single one of them loved their job. They were all patriots. Um, most of them had served in the military. Yeah, you know, it was just, they're you know they're they're the greatest generation. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. What was the age range with these guys? Well, um, so they, when they were serving, right? Yeah, like, they were serving. Sur yeah. yeah, probably um, the youngest was twenty six. Um, and then probably went up to about 45 or 50. Okay. Wow. But like the supervisors were maybe 50. Lisa, I can't imagine the stress that I guess I would go through being in that particular role. And, and as you were talking, it reminded me of a, of a buddy of mine who uh, was a childhood friend. I'd spend the night at his house. His dad had served in Vietnam. And he'd always told me like, listen, don't ever ask my dad about yeah. Vietnam. Like, He's does that is the one thing he does not want to talk about. So with you, it's kind of the same scenario. When you go to interview these secret service agents, again, it's something they don't want to talk about. How did you get their trust, right? How did you tread lightly that they would open up to you at the age of, you know, 70? Well, um, a lot of it was Jerry Blaine, you know, because we had this long-term family friendship and he knew my family and he knew he could trust me. I wasn't just somebody that was going to, you know, write something scandalous. Um, right. He really trusted me. 
So that, so then he would convince these other guys that I could be trusted. So that's how I got in the door, really. Um, but so when we were, you know, putting this all together, right, you know, uh, getting the scope of the book together. And remember, I didn't know anything about any of this. I really didn't. And um, so then I learned about Clint Hill. And so I said to Jerry, well, uh, you know, is Clint Hill still alive? Yes, he's alive. He lives in Alexandria, Virginia. And I said, well, I'd really like to talk to him. And Jerry said, oh, he doesn't talk to anybody. Really? He had basically been a recluse um, since he retired from the Secret Service in 1975. He had, um, you know, come out a little bit, but he really just didn't talk to anybody. And I, so I said, well, Jerry, see if you can get in touch with him. Let's see what we can do. So he agreed to meet with me um, in August of 2009. I went to Washington, D.C., and uh, we were, I set up a room in the Hay Adams Hotel, which is across the street from the White House. And uh, the first thing he said to me was, the only reason I'm talking to you is because Jerry Blank said I could trust you. I don't talk to anybody about that day ever. Really? I was kind oh, of like, goosebumps. Oh, nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> My name's Lisa. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. Um, and he gave me two hours. And so I was just very, you know, cautious. I tried actually not to ask him about the assassination um, because he told me he didn't want to talk about it. So I asked about other things. So by this point, I kind of knew the story of the Kennedy administration and different things that had happened. And um, one of the things that I honestly hadn't known, and I think many people probably don't know, is that in August of 1963, Jackie Kennedy had a baby, uh, their third child named Patrick Bouvier Kennedy. He was born on August 7th, premature, and he died two days later. Oh, wow. Uh, this, and then three months later, her husband is assassinated. Okay, so uh, she lost this baby was devastated and she's a public figure. She's, you know, the whole country was excited for a new baby in the White House. And then it was just so tragic. And so I asked Clint Hill about that because he had been Jackie Kennedy's agent. So I asked him, well, you know, what, tell me about when Patrick was born and died. And Clint Hill all of a sudden just teared up and I could see he was just really holding it back. And I thought, wow, it's been almost 50 years since that happened. And those emotions are still so raw for him. And I guess that's when I realized <clears throat> this is what this story was about, where all these emotions, these men had been holding in for 50 years and it went way deeper. So um, I had that, that uh, two hour interview with Clint and at the end of it, he made a big mistake. He, he said, okay, time's up. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. And I go, you know, just um, in case I have any follow-up questions, could I get your phone number? Because he hadn't shared any of his information with me. So he gave me his phone number, and that was his big mistake. Worst mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Don't ever give a reporter your phone number. <laughs> so, um, so I would call him. You know, first it was like once a week. I would just wanted to fact-check something. And then it would be twice a week. And then after every one of our phone calls the next morning, um, I would get an email from him where he was outlining exactly what we talked about. He wanted to make sure I had all Really? Um, and 
So then it became twice a week, then it was every day. And we just developed this kind of friendship, you know, over the phone. And we started talking about, well, oh, well, what did you do today? And, you know, what's it like over there? So it wasn't just about the book. It was 90% about the book, but we were kind of learning about each other along the way. And then one day, I think it was about a week before my deadline to have the book turned in, he called me. He had never called me before. And he called me and he said, you know what? I'm just going to tell you the whole damn story. Really? And he talked for two hours. And I remember I was in my kitchen standing at the counter and I'm just scribbling, scribbling as, you know, he's telling me all of this stuff that he had never told anyone. And I could tell that for him, it was a huge weight being lifted off of his shoulders, off of his soul, you know, just to get it out felt really, really good. It's like therapy for yeah, him. Totally. For after totally like, like therapy. And at that point, what was it? 45 years probably that he had yeah. pin, had this pinned inside of him. Oh my gosh. When he says that, Lisa, is your heart rate like just going out of control? Are you shaking? You're like, oh my gosh, this is it. This is happening. It's happening. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, why didn't you do this three months ago? Right. Now, <laughs> right. And then I had to call my eight, my editor at Simon Schuster and say, you're not going to believe this, but the whole scope of the book has just changed. So I need an extension. And, um, I mean, I, I really was working like 20 hours a day at that point, seven really? days a week. And my, wow. my family really pulled through my kids at that time were in high school and I, they learned how to cook because I said, I can't, I'm not cooking anymore. <laughs> you guys have to do all of this. So they really helped me out. Listeners, if you like what you just saw, like what you just heard, please go to iTunes, go to YouTube, and subscribe, rate, review this podcast. That's the only way we'll be able to continue to produce this. Where else can they go, Stephanie? They can go to kevinandsteph.com. That's all I know. So, is that it? You crushed it. Yes, crushed it. Thank you, listeners.